Well, like I said, today we are finishing up our series, our teaching series on unity. Um, it's a topic that is incredibly important to God, and so it needs to be important to us. You can find it throughout the New Testament. And ultimately, um, what has happened, though, is we'll read the Bible, and we'll come face-to-face with all these dozens of, of scriptures talking about unity, promoting unity, encouraging unity, and we just don't see it. Like, we'll read it, and we just will miss that part about unity, the emphasis on unity, because we have just been raised in a world that is division-minded. It's anger-minded. It's my team versus your team. That's the way our world seems to be. We are trained to move toward division and anger and trying to be right. And so unity is kind of this unnatural thing, so much so that most of the teaching in the New Testament, we just don't even see that it's there when it's staring us right in the face. Now, uh, just as a way of uh, recapping, so far we've learned in this series that unity is a supernatural gift from God, that we aren't just going to be able to kind of like muster unity, that we're not just going to be able to work together to kind of be people who are uh, the kind of people who can keep unity going and maintain unity. Um, I think you just got to look at like a sliver of human history to realize that humans stink at unity on their own. We're going to need God's help. Um, because it is Jesus who unites us together. He is the one that gives us common ground to stand on. Um, despite all of our differences and reasons not to get along, Jesus puts us all on an even playing field. We all stand before Jesus as sinners saved by grace. That is all we are. Um, but even though we have Jesus as our common ground, just being a Christian, just saying, okay, I'm a Christian, you get baptized, whatever, you're not going to immediately become that kind of person who can show unity. Again, it's not something we're going to figure out on our own. It's a gift from God. And so unity, our ability to be united, it's going to come through our closeness with God as we deepen our relationship with Jesus through things like daily prayer, Bible reading, other practices of, of growth. Through those things, the Holy Spirit is going to start shaping us to be people who can live according to unity and promote unity. And that way of life that we're going to grow into as we grow closer to Jesus is we're going to start to appreciate the love he has for us and be people who can show that love. Because loving like Jesus is what makes unity possible. Me loving you the way Jesus has loved me and you loving me and each other the way Jesus has loved us. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, you know, and you know, when we say mercy anymore and grace, we don't even, like, have a category for the size of his grace. You know, we go by the rule, fool me once, shame on me, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Like, that's kind of the way, I think I said it right, if I didn't, you know what I meant. Um, but that's kind of how our world works, right? Whereas grace and mercy are unending. It's just this overflowing cup of beauty and self-sacrifice. And so the love of Jesus is selfless, it's willing to lay down your life, to give. It's willing to forgive other people who hurt us because that's the kind of love Jesus showed us. And so we want to show that to other people. And all of those things make unity possible. Now, if you were here in the first week, um, I kind of started the sermon by just reading a bunch of verses just to kind of get us our eyes open to see that unity was a big deal and it is all over the New Testament. Um, now, as we've wrapped things up today, um, if you, I don't think anybody probably took notes and remembers what those verses were that I read uh, three weeks ago, but if you did, you notice we haven't talked about a lot of them. There's so many verses that talk about unity and about promoting unity and help us understanding unity that 
uh, we just can't go cover them all. Um, so what we're going to do today is I'm gonna just going to read a few verses, and we're going to just like kind of hit a few points, bullet points of different sections about unity, just again to help us to learn some of these principles as we strive to be a more united people. So here's the first one. We've got to remember that causing division is a sin. We've got to remember that it's a, it's a big deal to God, so much so that it's a sin. One thing that is interesting about when divisions pop up in church is they often come from people who are trying to do good. Like, yes, there, I'm sure there are church splits and church problems that arise because somebody was hungry for power and authority and wanted to get their way and all of that. That happens. But I really think that the majority of issues start out as good people trying to do good for their church. And they're passionate about something, they're eager about something, and they want to do what's best, and it just kind of snowballs into this mission that they, we can't see past. It's this thing, i got to get this thing accomplished because it's going to be good for the church. And along the way, we cause problems. Um, my guess is that a lot of times, again, it's just passionate people pushing for uh, a program that they think is going to be good for the church. Um, a, a doctrinal teaching that they think, we have to adhere to this or else we're all going to fall apart. Or maybe it's a lot of times uh, things about like the building. And they just wanted the building to be beautiful and set up for what the church, so the church could be set up to do the, the best they could. Um, but we get so focused on the thing that we're passionate about, what happens is that we forget that our primary objective is to love each other like Jesus. And when we lose our value for unity, which has happened in the American church and it's been gone for decades, what happens is we think that when we push for our thing, whatever it might be, carpet color, a certain class, a certain ministry program, when we start pushing for our thing and we don't value unity, what we do, we think that's the good work. But divisiveness is not the way of God. It's not the way of the Holy Spirit. It's not the leading God wants us to. In fact, when we start doing things that start leading towards division, that is evidence of not the Spirit working in us, but of our sinful flesh showing its form. In the book of Galatians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Galatia. He says this. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Meaning that a lot of the things my heart tells me I need aren't good. My heart is deceitful sometimes. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And sometimes you think, well, how do I know if I'm feeling my desires or the Spirit's leading in me? How do I tell the difference between the two? He gives us a little bit, makes it pretty clear for us. He says, for these are opposed to, the, to each other and to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Meaning if you want to know that you're doing something uh, that's not God's will for your life, here's some telltale signs of things that are against God's will. He says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, whoops, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but that's a wild list. There's a whole lot of crazy things on there, right? And division is listed right alongside sorcery and orgies. If you were making a list of bad things, 
Would you put division in with those two? No, none of us would because we're like division is not that big a deal. It's just two people going their own way. But, but you know, those other things, oh, you definitely shouldn't have those in church, whereas divisions have been commonplace in church for a long, long time. But what happens is, is that we are, we are not seeing truth the way God sees truth. And that's what this list is for. It's to help us understand that, whoa, wait a second. When we do things that are divisive, that's like... That's really bad. It's not what God's desire is. It's sinful. In Proverbs chapter 6, there's a list of seven things God hates. And one of those is anyone who sows discord or disunity among brothers and sisters in the faith. So we've got to understand that when there's an issue, even a big issue that pops up in church, when we start choosing sides, pointing fingers, alarm bells should go off for us and say, wait a minute, maybe... Maybe we're standing for a good cause in the wrong way. Maybe we're trying to accomplish something good through sinful means. And we've got to realize that we are moving away from each other rather than moving toward each other. Because even the biggest, hardest issues, there are ways to work at it and settle it in unity rather than just push each other apart, throw our hands up in the air, and walk away. Even if we're trying to accomplish something good, if that if the way we're trying to accomplish it leads to division of God's church, that's a sinful thing that we are doing. And we've got to be conscious of that. So we've got to remember, division is a sin. Churches have ignored that rule for decades and decades. And we've got to bring that back and understand that it's a real deal. Secondly, we've got to stop obsessing over non-essentials. One of the biggest sources of conflict in churches come from people arguing, getting angry, and taking a firm stand on things that really ultimately are not that big of a deal. In fact, I would say that a lot of the things that I think are essential to my faith, if I were really pressed, I'd have to admit they're not essential to being a follower of Jesus. They're just my preferred way of being a follower of Jesus. And churches have split over such small things. Um, The 80s and 90s, we saw what was called the worship wars, That sounds so ominous, but it was churches couldn't decide over music and taking a stand like drums were of the devil because they were in part of that horrible rock music that's going to lead your kids straight to hell, and and so we can't have drums in a church. Um, Before that, what's funny is the churches that say no drums are all about the piano, which when pianos started getting introduced to the church, it was another big thing because you know where the pianos were played mostly before they came into a church? At the bar. At the saloon. You're not going to bring that dirty, drunken bar instrument into my holy church. It's, and so we fight, we've been fighting about this stuff for a long, long time. About the kind of worship and music style. Um, churches have argued about carpet color, pew color, all of that stuff. Um, uh, in the first week of the series, I had looked up stories of the most ridiculous reasons churches had split. And the one I came across was uh, the church that split because one member hid the vacuum from other members. I have no idea what else was going on. There had to be more than that. But, but to say that that was the straw that broke the camel's back is wild, okay? So we will argue about stuff. We will find things to get mad about. We will find hills to die on. There's no shortage of them. Um, and we've had them here. We've had people leave our church because they didn't like our summer youth ministry plans. Um, they didn't like, uh, we've had people leave because they didn't like how we handled 2020 on both sides. That's one of the most frustrating things I've heard from churches across the country is like half the people left because they didn't think we did enough. The other half left because they thought we did too much. 
I don't know. It just is what it is, right? Um, um, one time someone vowed that they would never come back again because instead of passing the plates for communion like we used to do, we had people come forward and take communion when they had time to pray and reflect and were ready. I said, well, you, you changed that. We, I'm never coming back again. It's like, I don't even, okay, I don't, I'm so sorry that that offended you. But I think in the whole grand scheme of things, we've got to understand that that's a non-essential. And so there are aspects of our faith that we will care so incredibly deeply about that I think we've got to all just kind of admit it's not something that I need to apply to everyone else's life because it's my way doesn't mean it has to be everybody's way. And this struggle was a real thing, even in the early church, maybe even more so in the early church than for us. Um, In Romans chapter 14, we'll start in the first verse here. Now, what's going on is, just to help you understand, because if you just reading this, you're gonna, it's not gonna make sense to any of us, is you had people coming from all these different cultures, coming into this brand new faith of following Jesus. You had Jewish people, you had non-Jewish people. The Roman world had a dozen different versions of pagan religions, and they're all coming together and trying to figure out how to live in peace doing this new thing of following Jesus. And all of these people brought with them different ideas about what was morally right and what was morally wrong. And things you had to do to be a good moral person. And things that were forbidden if you wanted to be a good moral person. And there was clashes about that because they were coming in with these different ideas of what was right and wrong. And it started a problem. So Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, I'll explain what he means by that. It wasn't necessarily an insult. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over, what's that word? Opinions, man. We are such a confident people. Our opinions aren't opinions, right? I don't think it's right. My way is right. I said this before. Like, I, I regularly think every, nobody can drive but me. Everybody's a terrible driver. I'm the only good driver. And if you've ever been behind me or beside me, you've probably thought, that guy can't drive. You thought the same thing about me. It's fine. Like, like this, we're just so self-confident in our way, right? But these, he says, don't argue about opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's like saying, if you own your own business, you can't go into another business and fire somebody else's employee. He's like, we're all servants of God. You don't get to Pick on God's people. That's God's problem. He says, For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he who will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul is, is dealing with Christians, new Christians, baby Christians who are coming in, and some of them wouldn't eat meat because in the Roman world there's temples on every corner, um, and they would often make these animal sacrifices, and then they would burn part of the animal, and then they would sell the rest of it as meat. And so if you were, went to a regular Roman street meat market, chances are you were going to get meat that was sacrificed to some false god. And these newer Christians were like, I can't follow Jesus and eat that meat that was just sacrificed to this other god. 
And then you had more mature Christians who said, but that false god was just a chiseling, chiseled out piece of stone. It doesn't have any power in real life over the one true God of the universe, so I'm going to go ahead and eat that meat because it's good cooked meat, you know? And so you had some people that were like, I can't eat that meat. I've got to just be a vegetarian because that meat might defile me. And then you had other people that said, I'm going to eat whatever I want because God's in charge. And Paul says, that's a matter of opinion. It's not one is, has to be 100% right, one is wrong. It's not worth fighting over. He says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. And then he says, um, one day over another. Some people, you know, elevate some days over other people. The Jewish culture, they had lived for centuries. Saturday is the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. It's gotten, like, just to translate that into our modern world, there's some Jewish people today, they will call their neighbors over to turn on the lights in their house because flicking the switch is work. Okay? So the Jewish people were trained, do not do anything on the Sabbath. Okay? And so... They held that day as holy, and they probably believed that now I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm going to keep this day as holy to God. That's what you do. You honor God by keeping the Sabbath. And these other people come from these other pagan religions that had their own calendar of special days, and, and they wanted to live those special days for Jesus and celebrate on those special days for Jesus. And Paul says, okay, you do your own thing. You don't all have to fit inside the same little box, but some of this stuff, it's a matter of opinion. He says, you're not disagreeing over the big stuff. You're disagreeing over these smaller matters of opinion. And so there's a lot of things like this that happen in our world. Lots of um, you know, lines in the sand that we try to draw for one another. Um, one that I've encountered many times over the last 15 or so years is um, whether or not Christians can consume alcohol. And see, there's some of you in the room like, oh no, what's he going to say? Because we, you sense it. You know it, okay? Like some people grew up Baptist and thought Christians didn't drink alcohol ever, and then you met a Catholic. And Catholics are like, the priest brought the cooler of beer to the cookout. You're like, like how do we handle that, right? And so the Bible, it says that drunkenness is expressly forbidden. To get drunk is a sin. It says many times that being too Eager to consume alcohol and doing it too frequently is definitely can be dangerous and unwise, but there is never a place where it blanketly, uh, kind of as a blanket statement, forbids all alcohol. And so there are Christians, though, who say, you know what, those warnings, you know, maybe we should just say, if it's dangerous, we should just stay away from it. And they say, so Christians just shouldn't drink. Then I know other Christians who see the ability to, in moderation, consume alcohol as a, to be considered a blessing from God. They say, you know, after I've mowed my lawn, I can sit there and crack open a beer and drink it to, and just be glad that God has made his world and things like this. And some people think, I've heard Christians say, when I can sit down with all my friends and have a, a good glass of wine with dinner, I just praise God for this good, joyous moment. Okay, That's two differing perspectives on alcohol. Again, Getting drunk, the Bible very clear about that that is wrong. This is just talking about a drink in moderation, okay? But we, that's one of those issues that is so, gets so passionate and stirred up that we kind of legalistically want to apply our perspective across the board. And I just don't think you can do that. It falls into that category, at least in my opinion, of a matter of opinion. 
So we got to be careful that we don't obsess about non-essentials. we got to keep our eyes on Jesus and realize that we are brought together as a united family in Jesus, and we're not going to agree on all of the little tiny details. And then finally, and this one might seem pretty straightforward and plain, but we got to learn to fight all forms of selfishness when we see it in ourselves. But selfishness is almost a natural state for human beings. It's just, it, we're such me-focused people raised in a me-focused culture to think about ourselves all day, every day. And there are so many fights and disagreements in a church that happen because we're not thinking about the church. We're thinking about ourselves. I don't like that. This doesn't rub, this rubs me the wrong way. This doesn't feel good to me. And we get upset because we're looking at it from one perspective, our perspective. We're only seeing it through one set of eyes. But when we come together, we are called to fight against just thinking about faith from our own perspective and to think about the faith of the other people in our church family. Like when I show up on Sunday morning, I shouldn't be thinking about what kind of experience am I going to have, but I should be thinking about what, how is everybody in this room encountering Jesus this morning? What, what, what situations are, they, are people coming in here with? What things can I do to help people grow better in their faith? We're supposed to think outwardly rather than inwardly. Um, one incredible story of Christians being absolutely horrible at this comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, it is basically like getting a talking to from your mom from beginning to end. Paul hears a lot of bad stuff about this church. They, the Corinthian church has kind of gone off the rails in a bunch of places. And so he writes this letter, and he's like, you're doing this wrong and this wrong, and how could you? What were you thinking? If all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? Like, all of that stuff is kind of in there. And so what's happening is Paul is tearing them apart because they were going off the rails when it came to taking communion. They were, I mean, what in, I mean, we do that every week. There's never been problems Nobody's gotten into a fight, right, when we take communion. It seems like how could that, what, what could go wrong, right? But they, were, they went so bad off the rails when it came to taking the Lord's Supper. Um, and to understand how it went off the rails, we got to kind of get in our little mental time machines and go back 2,000 years, okay, because they didn't have church buildings. They didn't show up and grab little prepackaged, you know, little tiny. By the way, I went to take communion earlier. I opened the bottom and it, there was bread in there, but it was like the briefest, tiniest little wisp of a crumb. And I was like, like if I, if I like breathed out while I was getting it up to my mouth, it would have been gone and I never would have seen it again. So they didn't have that stuff. They weren't like trying to do, they didn't have, have little shots of juice, none of that, right? They would meet in homes. They would have loaves of bread and pitchers of wine to pour into their glasses, right? Um, and... Typically, the people that hosted those church meetings were the richer, more well-to-do people because they had one of home big enough and they had the resources to buy enough food to feed a larger group of people. Um, the people who were poor, their houses weren't big enough and they definitely didn't have the food. Um, and then you got to think of, there were people who were slaves. Like they were sold, they lived in the household of somebody else. They had an employer that determined every moment of their day. They did not have the authority to open up their home. It wasn't technically their home. They didn't have the authority to give away their master's food to this new church they had joined. And they probably didn't even have the ability to really show up when they were supposed to. Because if they said, I'm supposed to be there at 9, and their master said, well, too bad, I've got 
five more things for you to do, then they just had to do those things and then come to church whenever they were free. And so you had the richer people having people into their homes. They provided the food. The poor people came to their house. The poor Christians in their church came to their house. The slaves showed up whenever they were able to. And so the idea was supposed to be that they would come and share a meal as a way to remember Jesus' loving sacrifice to them. That's the point of communion. But what had started to happen is the rich people would be there on time because it was their place with their food, and their friends would come over, right? Their richer friends. And um, the other people weren't there yet, and they'd say, well, they're late. I'm going to go ahead and eat. It's my food anyway. Let's go ahead and eat. And they would eat all the bread, and they would drink all the wine. And then when the poor people showed up, and the, or the slaves showed up an hour later, all the food was gone, and all the rich people were drunk. And so they couldn't partake in this meal to remember Jesus. They just walk in like, okay, you guys are already gone, and I guess I don't know. I mean, it just was like not at all what it was supposed to be. And so um, they would show up and have nothing left to eat, no way to sacrifice. Okay, now again, not a problem we have now, right? You would have to be absolutely starving, to be back there at that table, like ripping open those one thing at a time, eating little crackers, doing little tiny shots of grape juice, like that would, that, that's not going to happen here. So we don't have this idea in our brain, but imagine that we were actually having a meal and you showed up to somebody's house to have this beautiful, sacrificial memory of Jesus and you showed up and everybody's just, the food's gone, all the turkey bones are picked clean, the bread's crumbs on the table and everybody else is drunk and you're like, what did I miss? What just happened? Like you would be a little bit upset by that. And so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for better but for worse. Meaning church is supposed to be a place where we are blessed, where we get better not we're a place where we get worse. And he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Yeah, I think there are some divisions. And he says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Like, if you ever, like, walked in on a situation that was so, like, out there and surprised that you walked in, you go, what is going on? Like, I love that. Like, that just feels so real to me. What is happening? Um, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's like, if you were hungry, open your own fridge. Do it at your own dining room table, not this shared table. He says, or do you despise the church of God? I mean, do you despise the people in your church family? And do you seek to humiliate those who have nothing? It was supposed to be this beautiful thing where people came together and they shared a meal around the table or those who had more shared with those who had little. But instead it became this moment to highlight who had more and highlight who had little. This humiliating moment for the people who had nothing to bring to say, I guess I don't get to eat then. I guess I don't get to celebrate what Jesus has done for me because I'm too poor. It was just a, a dividing line, a division in the sand for this church. He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So instead, what happened was these people, whoops, I jumped ahead a little bit. Uh, what instead had happened was these people were selfish. They got there and said, here's the food, here's what I want. I'm hungry, my stomach's growling, I'm going to eat. 
And they were thinking not about the people in their church. They thought about the kind of experience that they wanted to have when they came with their church family. And they listened to their growling bellies and their cravings. And yet, as we live out our faith together, as you come to church on a Sunday morning, maybe you just come and you're not doing anything and you're sitting. Maybe you're going to serve somewhere. Maybe you're going into a, a, a growth group. Whatever it might be, we can't look at this from a selfish perspective. We've got to understand that there are dozens of other people on a faith journey walking towards Jesus from different places than we are. And that their faith, in, when they come here, is meant to be grown, enhanced, blessed. And we can't just think about what I'm going to get out of a Sunday morning. And, you know, I had so much more to talk about. I had so many more verses I wanted to read. I had five points originally, but that was three, and I thought, i gotta got to cut it off at some point. And so um, what I'll do here is I'll just give you this next little slide for any additional reading. If anybody wants to, if, if any of you teacher's pets like to do extra homework. Um, so I would encourage you to look for the connection between wisdom and peace in James chapter 3 and the connection between humility and unity in Philippians and then um, also, look what happens, what the church is supposed to do with people who are consistently divisive out of Titus chapter 3. But ultimately, um, we've got to understand that being a united people is very difficult. It's not going to come easy. We are going to have problems and disagreements. We're going to have sins that exist here. There will be theological differences that arise. We'll read parts of the Bible a little bit differently and interpret those things differently. Um, but whatever else happens, we've got to seek to handle those disagreements in ways that are respectful, kind, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, in ways that lead us closer together rather than farther apart. And there are ways to do that. Ways in which we look at these opportunities as a way to understand other people better rather than to tell other people how wrong and stupid they are and how much right, better and more right we are. That's not the way the church should handle itself. And I'm ashamed that historically that's been kind of the way the church has handled itself for decades and decades. And so we're going to have these issues. And as we saw, we're going to invent issues. We're going to hide the vacuum from each other. And we're going to do silly stuff like that. And we're going to, again... Determine that the tiniest little molehill is a hill to die on. We're going to invent things to fight about. And so we have to be constantly working to keep from walking away from each other and moving toward each other and loving each other like Jesus loved. We've got to be people who are willing to live out that I would die for you kind of love. I would lay down my life, my preferences, my whatever for you. And so when we bicker and point fingers... We are failing to live out the heavenly peace that Jesus died to give to all of his followers. When we gossip and accuse, we are showing that we have been more shaped by our culture than by the love of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Now again, let me be clear. Um, valuing unity does not mean we ignore issues and sweep things under the rug. That's not, that's not unity either. Um, that's heresy. Uh, we don't want that either. That's bad. Uh, but we've got to live valuing both scriptural truth, what uh, justice, what God wants for us, and unity. And so we have to love each other more than the issues we're disagreeing about so that we can maintain unity. Because only then will we have the ability to, to do the hard work and have the drive to do the hard work of settling our issues in ways that lead to peace and unity. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these calls to unity without, uh, throughout your New Testament. I thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to shine your light even in moments when we disagree. 
we have the ability to handle problems and issues in ways that are so loving and so kind that as we settle them and, and as we show our value for each other, that anyone looking at that would say, how can these people handle things so wonderfully? And so even our problems are an opportunity to shine your light. And I pray that we would see them as such rather than seeing them as an excuse to walk away and only be around Christians who are exactly like us, who think like us, who practice like us, who believe like us. Um, but our goal is to stand around the essential issues that Jesus is the Son of God who came into our world to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have freedom, who, who ro rose from death to pave the way so that we might have a new future ahead of us where we would become a restored humanity and a restored earth, that we, would, that we would be able to cling to the essentials of our faith and be okay that we disagree on some of the non-essentials of our faith, and that that wouldn't affect our ability to love and care for each other. But it's hard because it's not natural, and we don't really know how to do it. And so I pray that through your spirit, Father, you would give us the strength and the ability um, to make right and wise decisions the next time we encounter something that is difficult and divisive, and that we would handle it in such a way where love is grown and where unity is increased. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.